When Andy announced his departure, the Kirk session discussed the preaching schedule in order to make sure it didn't all fall on Harrison and give him a burnout. And the observation was made, I think it was uh, Gabriel, that it might be a good thing to continue with series because it gives consistency and the context and also discipline um, because it prevents the preacher from getting on to his hobby horses and ride them to death. Now, with several elders preaching and maybe also guest speakers, there might be some chopping and changing, and it might not be so simple to do a series. But I think it's worth a try. And then the next question, of course, is, well, which book? Now, some time ago, I, le- I looked at the sermon archive of LCPC to find out what it, w- it, what it was that had been preached on. And I took uh, for each Bible book the number of the sermons over the last decade and divided them by the number of chapters to get some kind of crude indication as to what were the popular and not so popular books. And unsurprisingly, and there was a clear pattern. Some books were very popular. Mark, the shorter Pauline letters like Colossians and Philippians, and others had not been preached on at all in the last decade. Judges, Job, Lamentations, Jeremiah only once. And in the top 25 least preached books, were 24 in the Old Testament. And among them was Deuteronomy. And the last sermon, I think, was in 2014. And I think that's probably the case in many evangelical churches. And in fact, I think that LCPC is doing relatively well. Because with Andy preaching on Numbers and Leviticus and uh, Harrison taking us on a tour through the Minor Prophets, I think, you know the imbalance is probably less than in other churches um, because these books are usually not tops of the box. But what about Deuteronomy? It is said to have been the most influential book in the Old Testament time. It was studied, as we know from many findings in Quran, quite intensely. And it is together with the Psalms and Isaiah, the most quoted book in the New Testament, more than 50 times. And the Old Testament book that the Lord himself cites most often is indeed Deuteronomy. He uses it, for example, in the temptation. He uses the Shema. He uses the summary prayer. So why is the book not more often preached on? Well, that becomes clear if you look at the book, because at the first glance, it looks like some repetitive historical narratives combined with a large jumble sale of law rules, especially in the central section. And some of them appear quite harsh and today totally unacceptable. Think about Deuteronomy 7, which is sometimes called the Canaanite genocide. And others seem odd. You know, you can't mix wool and linen in your clothes and you need to have tassels on your garments. And some 
may have been quite appropriate at the time, but seem now completely out of date. You know, marrying captive women, taking millstones as security, and so on. And yet, it claims, and we indeed profess it to be, the inspired word of God. And so, Lord willing, we will try. And like the Israelites were on a journey, we will embark on this journey and see what the Lord says to us. And we will keep two questions in mind as we do so. What is it that the Lord tells us about himself? Uh, what is the theology of the book, if you want the jargon? And then what response does the, does the Lord require from us in our life? And that is the question of the ethics. Now, when you start looking at the book, it is often useful to reflect on a few prior questions. What about the composition of the book? And composition has two aspects, who composed it, when, and what is the composition, the overall structure of the book. And that last question is, of course, linked to the second question, what is the message, theme, or the purpose of the book. And I think it's important to reflect on that question, because otherwise we might lose sight of the wood or all the trees, certainly if we are in that section in the middle. And these questions have been hotly debated by theologians. Until well after the Reformation, the dominant view was the traditional Jewish view, and that is that the better part of Deuteronomy are Moses' words, just before the Israelites entered the Promised Land and just before his own death. For about a century, from the mid-19th century to in, well into the second half of the 20th century, the dominant view was that the book was from much later, the 6th century before Christ, a few decades before the exile. And based on all kinds of theories about how the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, were cobbled together at different times from different sources, it's called the GEDP documentary hypothesis, and all kinds of theories about the history of the development of Israel's religion. It was thought that the book dated from the time of Josiah and King, Second Kings chapter 2, verse 8. The story there is that Josiah was trying to address the neglect of the temple and cleaning it out and repairing it, and then he, they found the book of the law generally thought to be Deuteronomy and since it had been neglected so long it came the book came as a total surprise to them and the income and the content the contents shocked them into action reforming action now the prevailing paradigm of the theologians uh, in during that time and the central assumption that all theologians who wanted to be leading action move with the times and be guided by the latest science they agreed that in 2 Kings 22, verse 8, they did not find the book of Deuteronomy, but they faked it. They wrote it, they say, hid it in the rubble of the uh, temple, 
uh, then found it while they were cleaning it out and repairing it and pretended to find it and announce it to be very old to give it authority. And the purpose of that whole exercise was political. Josiah wanted to centralize the religion in Jerusalem, using Deuteronomy 12 for that purpose, and thus control it, the religion, for the betterment of his own power. And this is the basis from which the book must be understood and explained. But scientific schools and paradigms are a a little bit like a moon. You know, they wax and they wane. Um, And in the second half of the last century, also the consensus here broke up and the paradigm fragmented and splintered as people took a closer look and found the theory unsustainable to come up with all kinds of other variations and views. Now I mention this because you may find references to all these in the commentaries or maybe in high school RE religious education textbooks, which always lag a little bit behind. Uh, but I will not spend any further time on it because we will read the book as it presents itself and discover, I think, that there is no reason not to accept its own claims. And as you read it, as we did at the beginning and the end, you see that Deuteronomy presents itself as Moses speaking within the framework of a third-party narrator providing introduction and the ending, and a few connecting comments somewhere in the middle. Now, the narrator isn't identified in the book. The Jewish tradition has it that it was Joshua, which is possible, uh, but since the book doesn't say so, presumably not critical. And the text provided by the narrator does have a message, though. It is not just filling and padding. And we will look at that message in a minute or so. But we have a time of composition and a writer. Now, the next question was, is there anything we can say about composition as in its structure? And is there an overarching message? Well, if you read through the book, you will see that there are three addresses or sermons marked in the text. The first one starts in chapter 1, verse 5, the last verse we read in that section, um, where it says, Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, and then there is a colon and it starts. That goes on well into chapter 4, and then there is a brief connecting comment by the narrator. Um, And then in chapter 5, verse 1, again, a long speech starts by Moses, which runs all the way to chapter 29. There the third one starts. And then finally, in chapter 31, verse 1, there is the announcement that Moses is again speaking. Now, in the form of an epilogue, Um, And there are basically two parts to that epilogue, very different pieces of text from the sermons. There is a song and there are blessings. So the form, I think, if you read through it, is reasonably clear. There are, as it were, two bookends in the form of an introduction and a wrap-up by the narrator. And in between, there are three sermons from Moses and an epilogue 
by Moses consisting of two blocks of texts, the songs, then the blessing. But you may want to ask, next to the structure of the form of the book, is there anything we can say about the structure of the content of the book that will help us to keep an overview, a perspective, on what we are hearing when we are right there in the middle of all these laws in the middle of that text? Because I guess we still want to see the wood and not lose it for the trees. Well, there may be. And here we have to go on a little detour. You see, the area of the land which the people were about to enter was always during the whole Old Testament period wedged between two superpowers which dominated the known world in the ancient Near East. One was in the southwest and it was always Egypt, rich, fat, happy and powerful because of the richness and the eminently reliable fertility brought by the Nile, which depended on regular annual flooding rather than less reliable rain. And on the other side of the promised land, <coughs> there was in the time of Deuteronomy, there were the Hittites <coughs> directly, directly north of them. And later in the Old Testament, we see that center of the power shifting east, first to the Assyrians in Syria, and it was them who ended the northern kingdom at the time of Isaiah. And then it shifts further east to the Babylonians, which is today today Iraq, and it was them who ended the kingdom of Judah in the exile, and then finally to the Persians. Now these Hittites, is also known from other sources, were overlords of many smaller nations. And they laid down their relationship as the sovereign with these nations as their vassals in a standard format treaty. And such treaties have been found and they regulated that in return for the love from the sovereign and the protection against enemies by the overlord, the vassal nation would love him, be loyal to him, pay him honor and tribute. And it is quite possible that Moses, who had, after all, been educated as a prince um, at the court of Pharaoh, was familiar with that format. And here are now the Israelites, escaped from one superpower as a group of rather dispirited slaves, and they are about to be settled as a new nation with its own territory but in which influence sphere of which superpower would they now fall? Still Egypt or the Hittites? And Moses may have thought it useful to use the format of such a sovereign vassal treaty to make it very clear that their overlord was Yahweh. He was their king, him they should love, to him they had to show loyalty and to him alone and not to any others. They should, in the promised land that they received from their overlord, the Lord, remain faithful to the covenant that he had entered with them. And that was the covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people. They had received 
in a way, their constitution in the form of the Ten Commandments and many ancillary rules in the wilderness at Sinai, at Horeb. And now on the threshold of entering the promised land, Moses reminds them of that covenantal relationship. And he lays out the implications of the covenant by using the layout of such a treaty. Now the exact form of such a treaty at the time of Moses and the possible later developments in the next millennium are much debated. And so is the question whether Deuteronomy followed one verse or the other and whether it followed form exactly or not. And there is also the question whether Deuteronomy and Moses at times deliberately deviated from that format to highlight certain differences. We will not go into too much detail of all that, but to sh- and not assume that Moses strictly and slavishly followed any such pattern, because the content of Deuteronomy is much too varied and too diverse and too rich for that. But it may well be helpful to assume that Moses felt that it was also helpful for the him and the people to have this pattern, maybe as a metaphor, as a parallel to explain the Israelites what their relationship was with the Lord and by implication what their relationship was not with the surrounding worldly and religious powers. Because it was not the Hittite king, nor the Egyptian pharaoh, nor any other worldly or religious power who was their protecting overlord. It was Yahweh. And with him, they had entered into a covenant after he saved them from the subjugation in Egypt. And if they stuck with him as their sovereign, he would protect them against evil. He would give them, as the phrase is repeated many times in the Old Testament, he would give them rest from all their enemies all around. And he would bless them. Now, broadly speaking, such treaties had the following building blocks. There was an introduction or a preamble which introduced the topic and the one who was speaking, which was usually the overlord. And then there was a historical prologue indicating what went on before and how everybody had gotten into the situation of this treaty. For example, the overlord had saved them from some enemy. And then the third building block were the stipulations the main stipulations and the ancillary stipulations, and these specified what each party had agreed to, to do, committed to, one protection and the other loyalty. And then the fourth block in these treaties was usually a ratification or a kind of a sealing in the form of identifying or adjuring the consequences what good and things would happen if they listened and what bad things would happen if they didn't. Blessings and curses. And then the last block was usually a document clause um, and witnesses. It regulated where the treaty would be kept, usually in the temple, and how it would be kept known to the people so they wouldn't forget it. It was done by regular reading, uh, by songs to memorize it, by festivals and by appealing to witnesses. Now, if we now, enter, if we now end our little detour and return to the book of Deuteronomy, and we use this approach to keep an overview as to where we are in the text, 
and what the function and the purpose of the text is, we may, I think, use the following outline in Deuteronomy. First, there is the opening bookend, as it were, by the narrator, the preamble, which is what we read, chapter 1, the verses 1 to 5. And then there is the first sermon or address, the historical prologue, which runs from chapter 1, verse 6, to the end of, verse, of chapter 4. And then there is the second address, or the second sermon, which is the main and ancillary stipulations. The first, the main stipulations running from chapter 5 to chapter 11, and the ancillary stipulations from 12 to halfway 26. And that's followed by the ratification or the sealing with the blessings and the curses being pronounced, which you can find in the second half of chapter 26 down to 29. And then the third sermon or address is actually slightly different. It's a prophecy. Moses is looking into the future. He is reflecting about what he thinks may happen with this treaty. And he anticipates that there will be desertion resulting in the exile, but also that there will be a return afterwards. That is what you find in the chapters 29 to 30. And then finally, there is the epilogue, the document clause, but mainly the summary song of Moses, where he summarizes in a memorable form all that he has said, and there are the summary blessings by Moses. And that's the chapters 31 to 33, and then at the end, there is the closing bookend by the narrator, um, the two sections we read, chapter 32 and chapter 34. So how now to summarize the overall theme? Well, I think the book of Deuteronomy is an appeal to keep the Horeb, the Sinai covenant, as Israel finds itself at the threshold of a new phase. It's a covenant renewal on the journey from the wilderness into the promised land. And it's in the form of a treaty that defines Yahweh as their overlord and Israel as his people. So as Bob needs a title, I think it is a covenant call to love and to live. It is a covenant call to love the Lord and to live as he would wish, because that's the only way that you can live. Now, with, I guess, this sort of rather too long introduction, I get, we can now turn to the two bookends that we read, the, the stories, but the introduction and wrap-up by the narrator. Now, of course, usually bookends are there just to prop up the books in between, which have the real content. In this case, the three addresses and the epilogue by Moses. But here also the bookends have a content. They have a message. Now the book Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy in our Bible, and I guess sometime later we will get into that, why that is. Um, but it's not actually the best name. The better name was the Hebrew name for, the, for this book. And in the Hebrew Bible, the books were named after the first word of the Bible book. So, for example, Genesis Genesis is called Bereshith, in the beginning. The book of Deuteronomy is called Eleh Hadabarim, which means these are the words. 
And these are the words. And that is a much better title. Now the question is, whose words? Now the narrator tells us right at the beginning. Verse 1, Moses. And then when we have read all these words and we have worked our way through that whole book, and at the very end, he tells us something very important about this Moses. In chapter 34, the uh, last verse from verse 10, because what he tells us there is, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the service of Israel. So no prophet has arisen in Israel like him, and no one has ever been empowered by the Lord like Moses, whose words here are given. So I guess, in closing, he emphasizes that we better take this serious, because it is important. These are the words from the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But there is also something remarkable here. Because in the normal treaty, it would be the king, the sovereign speaking. So I guess Israel is immediately confronted with the fact that the king himself, God, Yahweh, is invisible. There is for them no earthly king. But they and we are also assured because chapter 1, the beginning tells us the words Moses spoke are the words of God. That is what it says in verse 3. Verse 3b, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in concerning them. Now there are two things worthwhile noting in these three verses. The first note is that them is all of them, in verse 1. It was not addressed to leaders, to important people, to men only, nothing of the sort. It was addressed to all of them, men, women, adults, children. Children will be specifically mentioned later in the book. Leaders and ordinary people. So the proclamation is inclusive. It was to all. But then the second thing to note is that there were not only spoken words, but there were also deeds. Because what it says is that all that the Lord had commanded concerning them, and at the end of the book, the narrator impresses that on their and on our minds again, in verse 11, where he says the Lord knew him face to face, so he heard his words directly from the, from the Lord's mouth, but also the Lord had sent him to do all these mighty deeds against the superpower of the day and the most mighty man on earth in that time, the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Moses made this proclamation in word and deed. And I guess now we understand that in Deuteronomy, the historical narratives are not just repetitions and duplications, but they speak. They speak of the Lord and of his power, of his justice, his mercy, and his love. And we will hopefully see more of that in the next section of the historical prologue.
And that is the claim that the narrator makes about this book. It is the Lord speaking through a human, Moses, and that claim still stands before us. And what the narrator also tells us is when and where these words were spoken. Because also that is of importance. It is beyond the Jordan, in the plains of Moab, after they had beaten Sihon and Och. In other words, it was a critical juncture and a moment of great change. Now the places that are mentioned in verse 1, Tophel, Laban, Azeroth and Izahab are not all known. It is probable that they were on the route from Horeb, the Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea. And then the text makes what looks maybe like an odd sort of thrown-in detail. Because it says that the route from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea takes 11 days. Now, Horeb was the place where they had entered into the covenant with the Lord for the first time. And Kadesh Barnea, you can read it in Numbers 14, was the very place where they had lost faith and therefore were turned back into the wilderness. But what the narrator reminds the Israelites of, and also us, is that what should have been a very short journey, 11 days, took them actually 40 years, because what that's what the text also says, it was the 40th year. And the next chapters of the Oracle Prologue will lay this out in greater detail, because the message basically is what should have been an 11 or 12 day journey has taken them 40 years because of their unbelief. And that is, he, will say, he says, implicitly how critical, obedient, living, living within the covenant is. But there is also a hopeful note, because there is now change in the air, because now there may be a turn for the better. For now he also records the promising start. There are already the victories over Sihon and Och, because after Kadesh Barnea they tried to enter the country and they were beaten back. But now there is hope and there is expectation. And at that critical and that joyful juncture in time and in geography, the narrator tells us Moses starts speaking. And after the failure to enter the promised land following the first closing of the covenant at Sinai, Moses now initiates a renewal of that covenant as they are about to enter the promised land. And there follows exposition, adjustment, application of what the covenant demanded. Because from a desert journey, they will now go into settled status. And from nomads, they will become landowners. And from stateless wandering ex-slaves, they will become a rich and landed nation. And they need to know who is their protector, their overlord. And they also should know how to love and to serve him. And so it says in verse 5, Hoil Be'er Torah, he began to explain the Torah. And I think it's worthwhile noting that word Torah is translated sometimes as law, but it's actually a much broader meaning. 
What follows is not legal law, but life's instruction. It is instruction about what the Lord expected from them in real life in new circumstances. And that is to be made absolutely clear. He began to explain with the purpose of. He's not reading them the right act. He's not reciting a dry piece of legal text. He is not providing factual information that you need to get between your ears before you can pass some test. But it is to convince and to teach and to persuade them to love the Lord. For only in loving the Lord, which is obeying the Lord, can they enjoy the treaty benefits and live. And so already in these five verses, you see the briefest summaries of the biblical view of scripture. Because the speech and the writing is human. Moses, verse 1. But it is inspired and coming from the Lord. That's what it says in verse 3. And it is provide, it is intended to provide a clear guidance for living in verse 5. And then there is an other detail that the narrator gives us about an other critical juncture. And that is, this all plays out at the point of Moses' death. Because the whole book of Deuteronomy plays itself out, possibly in one day, maybe in a few days, just before Moses is there. And that's what we read about in the end. The servant of the Lord is now 120 years old. Which is very old, also at that time. But the text is also very specific. His eyes were undimmed and his strength was unabated. So Moses did not die just of old age because physically he was worn out and mentally he had run out of steam. No, it is because of a very specific event, an event that is described in Numbers 20 at the waters of Meribah. That word means strife in the desert of Zin. And the story returns in the Pentateuch four or five times. And Moses requests also in Deuteronomy 3 verse 27 that the punishment be lifted, but that punishment is sustained. You can also read that in, in chapter 4 verse 20. In, in, the, in this land, in Moab, I must die. And the fact me made it even into the summary song in chapter 32 verse 50. I will see it but not go there. So Moses' pain is quite clear, but the Lord does not relent. And yet, there is, we can see at the end, uh, mercy and promise, even in the midst of this sad episode. Because on Mount Nebo, the summit of the rich northeast of the Dead Sea, the Lord shows him the promised land. And he's given the view from the northeast in a circle from the northeast to the west and then to the south. And the names that are used to the areas are actually the tribal names. Outside well, weren't there at the time. So it's clear that the narrator um, has added those. Um, and there is the consolation of the repeated to Moses. Because as sure as you see it, I will give this land to my people. 
Because you see, Moses was great, but he was not the king. He brought them to the border, but he will not lead them in crossing it. Because before he could, he died. And as Harrison mentioned, the text states this morning, the text states that he, the Lord, buried him. So even in punishment, there is respect. But also his grave and his body were nowhere to be found. And there could therefore be no transfer and no reburial with pomp and circumstances like they did with one of these English kings they found under a parking space in the land like would happen with a Joseph. It was final, and it was painful, because Moses would never enter the land. The only la- the only leader that the people had ever known, and I guess he must have been like the queen, you know, he was the only leader they had known. Their liberator, their nation builder, their mediator, their lawgiver. He could bring them to the edge and to the border, but not into the land, And in the end, he could not even go there himself. Four or five times, as I mentioned, this is brought up by Moses. Now, why? Well, it was, as it says in the text, in chapter 32, verse 51, which is from the song. It says, because Moses did not give honor to the Lord. He did not respect the Lord as their sovereign. Uh, you may remember the story. He was supposed to speak, take his staff and speak to the rock um, on behalf of the Lord. When he said he was so angry that he whacked it with his uh, staff um, and uh, said, I will give you water. So he did not give the Lord the honor he was due as their sovereign. And that, I think, is implicitly the message. The stipulations of the covenant, which Moses is about to expound again here, needs to be taken serious. That is the implied warning to the Israelites and to us. Because what you see is that Moses' power and authority were great. But in death, they do not go with him. They need to be transferred to his successor to Joshua. That is also what the narrator tells us. And the appeal to choose the side of the Lord will continue to reverberate through that book. But also Joshua, he will not complete the job. And the evil of the Canaanites, it stays. It is, I guess, a little bit like a virus. The virus of idolatry was never entirely eliminated. And in time it would break out again and finally overwhelm Israel. And so the narrator tells us, the story of this great Moses is like one of the pieces of Mozart, I guess, an unverendete. It is an unfinished piece. And as we know from the historical books, Chronicles, for example, this earthly nation that was about to enter the Promised Land would end in the 6th century in the exile, which Moses already foresaw and feared in chapter 30. And the prophet of Moses did not rise again. And for centuries they were looking out for a prophet like Moses, as he had indicated they should in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. And they were still asking, they were asking John the Baptist whether he might be the great prophet. I guess we now know that another prophet did bring another kingdom, the kingdom of God. 
John refers his audience and us to Jesus. And so it does in Hebrews, the sections we read. First, God spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through Jesus. And we should pay attention to Jesus, because there is more than Moses. And so in its open ending, and the incompleteness of the work that even as great a prophet as Moses left unfinished, the book is pointing forwards towards a greater prophet and to the completed work of the Lord Jesus. So I guess reflecting on these two bookends, the introduction and the wrap-up, in closing, we saw that the book of Deuteronomy is an appeal, a covenantal call to love the Lord and thus to live in his ways. And we were going to ask two questions. What have we learned about God? The theological question. But in view of the time, I'm going to park that question till the next time. And then the second was, how are we going to respond? And that was the question of ethics. Well, the narrator tells us to hear and to listen, because these are the words. And that is, Lord willing, what we will do. Listen to these words as we go through this book, and then love and obey him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to thank you, to thank you for your word, but most of all, to thank you for the love that speaks through it. Father, you are the sovereign of this world. As you were the sovereign of Israel, so you are our sovereign. And as you reached out to them, you reach out to us. And you are always willing to bring us towards you, because left to our own devices like the Israelites, we might wander away. And then there is your guidance, your spirit and your word, in which you speak to us. And Father, we ask Help us to understand the guidance that you give us through your word for your life so that we may live our life in obedience to you because that is the only way in which we can live. Father, we ask it because of the Lord Jesus who has fulfilled the work and brought it to an end. He completed your salvation. Amen.